This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Who do you think you are? And is the answer in your genes? This month, we're delving into genes and genealogy. There really is a single ancestor at some point in time that you can point to and say, this man is my great-great-great-great times N grandfather, or this woman is my similar grandmother. Plus, putting an end to genetic determinism and an ancient Egyptian gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast for September 2013 with me, Dr Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. In recent years, we've seen an explosion in people digging into their family history, tracing their family trees. And with the advent of cheap gene sequencing, there's a new field of recreational genetics springing up as people try to unpick their genetic ancestry. But what can our genomes actually tell us about where we come from and who we are? Professor Mark Jobling at the University of Leicester is a leading expert in human genetics and genealogy, so I asked him for some answers. Well, the human species is remarkable for the fact that it covers almost the entire habitable surface of the earth um, and has very very large numbers but that situation has arisen in a very short time compared to to other species so it's only about 200,000 years since our species originated and during that time there's been a migration we know um, from various lines of evidence that humans originated in Africa about that time and then migrated into the old world and thereafter there were several further migrations And then in more recent years, we've had contact between populations that have been separated for very long periods of time. So we're interested in looking at modern human genomes, the genetics of modern human populations, and trying to disentangle various aspects of those migration histories. I guess you could ask, well, don't we know a lot of that that anyway from history and other sources? The answer is we know some things, but not, not enough. And there's also often conflicts between different sources of evidence. So genetics has something new to bring to trying to understand how we ended up the way we are. And what sort of things are you actually looking at when you talk about the genetics of different populations? What sort of things differ genetically between people? Well, the first thing to say is that people are all very, very similar to each other indeed, and that's the important thing to stress. We always talk about the differences, but in fact we're 0.08% different. We are uh, a very uniform species. So we focus on the very small number of differences. Beyond that, we look at differences between populations in order to try and to understand when particular groups of people move from one place to another. And so we might think, for example, of um, the migration of the Jewish diaspora, you know, people who originated and moved about 2,000 years ago, then moved across Europe, or the migration of the Roma people, sometimes called gypsies, who originated about 1,000 years ago in northern India and then migrated across Europe, or more recent events like the uh, transatlantic slave trade, which brought African people together with people who had been living for thousands of years in the Americas and with people who had previously been living in Europe. So there have been a lot of these complex mixture events and you can look at differences between populations, these very small differences, to try and illuminate those events. And what sort of things can you tell? What sort of resolution can you get? Can you tell, for example, that a whole bunch of people all came from one family, one starting person, for example? 
Well, it depends which bit of the genome you look at. So you can look at individual uh, genome segments. Good examples are the Y chromosome, which passes from father to son, or mitochondrial DNA, which passes from mothers uh, to all of their children. So those form what are called gene genealogies, although they're not necessarily referring to genes themselves. But you can look at the pattern. You can form a family tree of all of those sequences in the world and look at the pattern of those in different populations. So that has some advantages in that it's rather simple to understand, but some disadvantages because, as you said, you're looking, in the case of all Y chromosomes, at essentially one pedigree, so that all modern Y chromosomes descend from one single man who lived at some point in the past. And similarly, all mitochondrial DNAs descend from one woman who lived at some point in the past. So those are only telling us about single ancestors in any one person's actual genealogy. So there's simplicity there, which gives advantages and disadvantages. So now we have whole genome methods of uh, trying to understand diversity. And that, again, brings advantage and disadvantage. So in the one hand, we're looking at the entire genome, or SNPs uh, are distributed across the genome. And that gives us many different evolutionary stories. Each SNP, almost each SNP, has a different story to tell. But we're looking at the averaging of those, and that gives us a kind of gen- general picture of how populations are related together. But it doesn't tell us about individual ancestry. Because that's something that people are very interested in. There's a whole industry of people looking at their family history, their family trees, trying to work out where they came from, where their origins were. What sort of things are going on in this kind of area of sort of recreational genetics that intersect with the sort of work you do? Well, you're right to say that people want to know where they came from or where their ancestors came from. And there's a big problem there because each one of us has two parents and they had two parents each and so on back in time. So if you go back just a few hundred years, the number of notional ancestors any one of us had is much greater than the current population of the entire planet. So we have many ancestors in common, which explains why that that number thing happens. Um, But at the same time, for any one of us to say, well, where did my ancestors live, say, 1,000 years ago, is a meaningless question, because they must have lived in many, many different places. So the, the simplest and most accurate answer to that question is everywhere. So there's a tension there between the public wanting this kind of ancestry story, this sort of who-do-you-think-you-are story about their, their genealogies, and what genetics tells us about ancestry, which is that it's complex, multifaceted, and we have many ancestors. So again, that's why there's been this focus going back to mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosomes. That's why those have become such a focus, because there there really is a single ancestor at some point in time that you can point to and says, this man is my great-great-great-great times N grandfather, or this woman is my similar grandmother. And there's a great attraction to that. What it leads to is is a focus on those two kinds of ancestors, the patrilineal and matrilineal ancestors, simply because they're easy to understand and think about. But they're no more special than any other of the ancestors that we would have had at that time. They're just the ones we can spot. They're the ones we can spot, exactly. And I, I think that some... there's. Uh, burgeoning in the number of companies doing genetic ancestry testing and I think some of them you know they try and oversimplify things uh, such that they're saying something about somebody's ancestors from a single lineage and that's uh, a bit of a a slightly misleading thing to do I think. So given that you're very well known for working in the area of, of genetics and population studies, do people often contact you with questions about their, their family history, about their genealogy? What, what are the most common things that people ask you about? 
Yes, we do get a lot of queries. And, I mean, some of them are quite uh, surprising and amusing. So there's a strong desire among men in particular to be connected to the Vikings in particular in the past. More broadly and seriously, we get quite a lot of questions from people who phone up or send emails about um, events in their own family history. And particularly common is people who've found they've been born by artificial insemination by donors, so they have no information about their father, or people who turn out to have been abducted, and again, there's no information. And finally, have you had your genome analysed in any way, and uh, what did you find in it if you did? Well, not very comprehensively. No, I act as a kind of controlled DNA sample in every experiment that's done in the lab. So I know my Y chromosome type. Uh, which is called I1A, and it's one of the ones that people uh, regard as a, as a Scandinavian lineage. So that much I can tell you. The rest of my genome I can't really tell you anything about. I've showed a surprising lack of interest in my own genome, given that what we do is work on everybody else's. That was Professor Mark Jobling from the University of Leicester. Coming up later, we'll be looking in more depth at how our genes are linked to our family history. But first, it's time to hear from the winner of the Genetic Society's first-ever JBS Haldane Lecture, Mark Henderson. Mark's Head of Communications at the Wellcome Trust and author of the books 50 Genetics Ideas You Really Need to Know and The Geek Manifesto. He's being recognised for excellence in communicating to the public about genetics and has just delivered his prize lecture at the British Science Association Festival in Newcastle. I met up with him before his talk and asked him to reveal some of the things he planned to say. What I'm really going to be trying to frame the lecture around is what I think is is often the biggest problem in the way that genomics gets communicated, um, which often leads to some misframings, I think, of some of the social challenges uh, that we face as a result of, um, of, of developments, particularly in medical genomics. And the, the problem, the misframing, is it really boils down to this, which is that genomics is usually, in the popular imagination at least, understood as a deterministic science, whereas in actual fact it's much more often a probabilistic one. So you hear these stories saying, oh, it's a gene for this, it's a gene for fat, it's a gene for cancer, this and that, where the picture you feel needs to be communicated in a much more subtle way. Uh, That's exactly right. Um, What has happened, I think, is that largely because some of the sort of lowest hanging fruit of genomics were actually very deterministic genes. Things like the uh, mutation that causes Huntington's disease. If you get that mutation, you get that disease. Uh, The recessive uh, mutations that cause cystic fibrosis. If you inherit two of them, you will get cystic fibrosis. Uh, There are a number of well-known genetic conditions that work in exactly that way, uh, and they're the the well-known genetic conditions out there. And as a result, I think there has been this widespread framing of genomics as something that's very deterministic. You have this gene, you have this mutation in this gene, you will get this disease inevitably. Now, that's true in a very small subset of diseases. And it's, it's true, actually, in some of the cases in which genomics is starting to make the swiftest inroads into medicine. It's true, for example, of very rare developmental disorders where a mutation causes often severe mental retardation or something like that, where genomics is having a really big impact already. It's sometimes true in cancer, although in a slightly different way, where we're talking about acquired mutations in somatic cells uh, most normally. And 
even there, it's not just one mutation that causes the cancer, but usually a cascade of several mutations that are necessary. So there are some cases in which that determinism is, is, is correct. But more broadly, uh, it's not actually the case. Most of the, the common conditions that we know about, diabetes, heart disease, etc., are influenced by lots and lots of, uh, of genes, uh, which tend to have very small effects. That's even more uh, the case when you start to look at what you might describe as more social traits, things such as uh, intelligence or height or obesity or anything like that. And so um, I think if we're to start to think properly uh, about how and why genomics is going to end up having an effect on some uh, questions for society, uh, we need to start from that point of understanding that for the most part it is a probabilistic science and not a deterministic one. What changes would you like to see in the way that, that genetics and genomics is communicated? What do you think could really make the most impact in bringing about these changes? I think we have to get away from this language of gene for uh, this and gene for that. As, um, uh, as you alluded to earlier, you'll see all the time in newspaper headlines the fat gene or the binge drinking gene or things like that. And frankly, there is no fat gene. There is no binge drink- drinking gene. Some of, these, uh, uh, some of these qualities, these traits, may have an element of genetic influence but there'll be many genes that are involved and, of course, many environmental factors as well. And I think what what tends to happen as a result of this sort of Gene 4 narrative is is you get two uh, almost conflicting uh, responses, both of which are wrong. One is this idea that, that genomics and medical application of genomics is going to be terrifically simple and that actually it's going to be dead easy to predict what people are going to die of in 50 years' time by measuring their genomes, or you're going to be able to tell how intelligent somebody is by looking at their DNA. And that's frankly just not the case. There will be slow progress, slow incremental progress, in applying insights of very specific targeted bits of the genome to to medicine, as we're seeing already in cancer and rare disease, some infectious diseases. Uh, It's not for the worried well who are going to be able to uh, predict exactly uh, whether they're going to get cancer 20 years in the future. And frankly, whether that comes about is, I think, quite a moot point. The other thing, actually, is that Genomics causes all sorts of very complicated ethical problems, and it does cause a number of ethical problems, but some of them are, I think, overblown because of this idea that everything um, is gene for this and gene for that. It feels like it really needs to go hand-in-hand with better understanding of risk, and what, what does risk actually mean for you as an individual? Uh, that's absolutely right, and, and something I think that also flows out of this is that... Um, Uh, Very many people are concerned about, for example, what insurance companies will do with genetic data or what employers might want to do with genetic data. Are you going to have to take a genetic test before you apply for certain jobs? And, And that's where I think some of this probabilistic, deterministic stuff really matters. I think that measuring somebody's DNA is going to be an absolutely appalling way to test their aptitude for any jobs. It's going to reveal virtually nothing. But if you want to measure how intelligent somebody is or how conscientious they are 
or how well, uh, how good their IT skills or something like that. The idea you're going to be able to do that by measuring somebody's genome is frankly rather ludicrous. And if we do need to think about laws against genetic discrimination, it's not because genetic discrimination will work, it's because it won't work. And we probably need to save people from themselves. That was Mark Henderson from the Wellcome Trust, winner of this year's JBS Haldane Prize Lecture from the Genetic Society. And I'd like to remind you that the Genetic Society's autumn meeting, looking at how the information in genes is interpreted to create biological shapes from limbs to leaves, will take place at the Royal Society on the 7th and 8th of November. If you want to go, just register now at genetics.org.uk. And now it's time to take a look at the rest of this month's top genetic stories. Researchers in the US have taken a step forward in understanding how the body's response to stress might be linked to the spread of breast cancer. Publishing their findings in the Journal of Clinical Investigation, the team focused on a gene called ATF3, which is switched on in immune cells in response to stresses such as radiation or a high-fat diet. The researchers found that cancer cells somehow send out stress signals that influence neighbouring immune cells to switch on the gene, which subverts them, allowing the cancer cells to escape and start spreading. Although the evidence linking stressful life situations to cancer is somewhat unclear, the researchers think that their finding could provide a plausible biological pathway linking stress to cancer spread. The exact details of what's going on still aren't clear, so there's a lot more work to be done before this knowledge can be turned into treatments or preventive approaches for cancer. Writing in the journal Nature Genetics, researchers at the University of Leicester have made a discovery that could lead towards a new hope for fighting Huntington's disease, an incurable degenerative genetic disease affecting the brain. Using a combination of yeast, fruit flies and mammalian cells grown in the lab as models, the researchers found that an enzyme called glutathione peroxidase, which is an antioxidant within our cells, can protect against the signs of Huntington's in these model systems. The scientists hope their finding could be taken forward to develop a treatment for the disease, which affects thousands of people in the UK and many more worldwide. Importantly, chemicals mimicking the activity of the enzyme are already in clinical trials for other diseases, which might make it quicker for new approaches to be tested in Huntington's patients. If you want to find out more about these stories, the references are on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out how stem cells are involved in cancer. But now it's time to take another look at genes and genealogy. Dr Thierry King at the University of Leicester has a particular interest in men, purely in the academic sense, of course. I spoke to her to find out how to trace men's genetic ancestry and how to spot the Vikings in our midst. I've actually been mainly looking at Y chromosomes. So I've been looking at the link between surnames and the Y chromosome. And I've been using surnames as a way to sample men as a way of looking at population movements in the past. So, for example, I'm interested in the Viking migration to the north of England. And so I'm looking for people who've got long ancestry in that area. And how do you find people who've got long ancestry? Well, we know that if people have got surnames that are thought to have originated in that part of the country, chances are their ancestry goes back to that country 
hopefully to about the time when surnames started to become established about 700 years ago. And then what I do is I look at men's Y chromosomes, and I do this on a population basis. So I'm looking at many men, and I'm looking at their Y chromosome types, and I'm looking to see whether or not as a population they look like they've got a high proportion of what looks like Scandinavian ancestry. And what can you find from that? What can you tell about the, uh, the Vikings in our midst so far? <laughs> well, I'm still in the middle of this project, so I'm just finishing off the typing. But it's actually it's an ex- a much larger extension of a pilot project that we did uh, several years ago where we tried this. Can you do surname-based sampling? Does it uh, give you a better indication of what the population looked like, say, several hundred years ago? And we did that in the Wirral in West Lancashire. So we took men who had very old surnames from this region, and then we compared them to men where we had just sampled them just on the base of grandparental place of birth. Was your grandparent born in this area? Okay, so your ancestry goes back at least a couple of generations. And then we took men who had the very old surnames, and then we kind of compared them. And it was interesting because if you looked at the men with the old surnames from the region, they had higher proportions of what looked like Viking ancestry or Scandinavian ancestry. So it looks like you can use surnames as a way of sampling individuals to look at population movements in the past. Now, this only works because a man has a Y chromosome, and that's passed from father to son to son to son. Mm. And also surnames are passed um, from father to to their family and so on. Does it get a bit sort of difficult and and mixed up in some cases where there's migration from different countries or in cases where surnames aren't inherited from the father? Yes, I mean, I've just been concentrating on Britain, but obviously there are parts of the world where surnames haven't been inherited from father to son for a very long time. So Norway is actually one of those places where it's a relatively recent thing to have heritable surnames. So it really does work in countries where you have this long tradition of heritable surnames where you get this Y chromosome and the surname passing down together down through the generations. It allows you to look at migration. It's interesting in terms of um, looking at uh, population movements because, again, you can look for surnames that look like they come from other parts of the world, and that would tell you probably a lot about more recent migration. What sort of work are you doing to try and understand in more depth where Britain's population has come from over recent centuries? As I say, I'm mainly concentrating on the uh, Viking migrations to Britain and and using surnames as a way to sample individuals. Um, And then, obviously, what I need to do is I need to have samples from Norway. So I've been sampling in Norway, finding men who have got ancestry, long ancestry in known regions of Norway. So I'm interested in knowing whether or not there's differences between populations in Norway and then also whether or not we can see um, within the Y chromosomes of men living in the north of Britain, can we tie them back at all to any particular parts of Norway or does it just look like a mix or this kind of thing? It's all kind of a work in progress at the moment. So, And the one thing that we do know is that Britain is a real patchwork of, of people that have yeah. come from all over the place. Um, is there much known about some of the other migrations and where where this, this mixed bag of people we call Britons has come from? Well, so that's really interesting because the reason why I can look at the Norse migration migration to Britain is because the frequencies of particular Y chromosomes in Norway are slightly different from what you find in other parts of, say, northern Europe. So it's very characteristic of, yeah, of Vikings. So, I mean, so it's, well, of the Norwegian population, so you get particular frequencies. So it's one of these things that it's actually really, really difficult to look at things like 
the Norman migration or the Anglo-Saxon migration or the Danish Viking migration because they are oral migrations from the same part of Europe, just separated by a few generations. So you can't really tease out, oh, that's an Anglo-Saxon or that's a Danish Viking or that's a, a Norman because there just hasn't been enough differentiation in the Y chromosome type, so certainly not at the level of typing that is available at the moment. And have there been any particularly exciting stories or sort of very strange things that you found, maybe specific families that you've thought, well, that's a bit odd? Well, we had a really lovely case. So I was typing this chap, um, and he lived in Leicester, and I, was, I had done it through postal um, typing. So I, he just volunteered to take part in the Synonyms Project, so I had no idea what he looked like or anything. And I was typing his Y chromosome, and I was doing this, and I thought, okay, this is looking unusual. And he had a really rare African Y chromosome type. So we thought, okay, what will we do? We'll bring him in and ask him if he knows whether or not he's got African ancestry. Maybe he's Afro-Caribbean. We're in Leicester. It's a very multicultural city. And he came in, and um, he just looked uh, indigenous, British, and knew of no African ancestry, but he had this very interesting African Y chromosome type. So I sampled other men with the surname, and about a third of them all carried this very rare type. So it's really nice. I mean, the obvious way is that this Y chromosome type came to the country is either through the Romans. We know that they had a garrison of African soldiers guarding Hadrian's Wall, and also through the slave trade. And that seems to be the most obvious route. It obviously brought huge numbers of people from Africa uh, to be used as sort of domestic servants and musicians. And obviously, some of them would intermarry. And so, obviously, this interesting Y chromosome type has become part of this family and hints at something in their really interesting in their past. Maybe one of the stories that's really hit the headlines you've been working on is about Richard III. Yeah. <laughs> and what can you tell me about that? I'm trying to do the Y chromosome side. And it's interesting because obviously with royalty you don't have this straight link necessarily of a surname coming down through the generations because you've got, they're known as the Dukes of Beaufort. Or, um, but you do have quite good records. We do, because there's Burke's Peerage. Again, this was work that was done by Professor Kevin Scherer, who he basically went back through Burke's Peerage and um, selected a number of individuals who would be distantly related, wrote to them and asked them to take part. They very kindly agreed to take part in the study. And at the moment, I have done the modern side of the Y chromosome typing. It's just trying to get see if I can get Richard to work as well. <laughs> <laughs> After all that time in a car yeah, park. That's right. <laughs> and finally, have you had any of your genome analysed? Are you curious about where you came from? <laughs> I haven't, um, funnily enough. I know what my mitochondrial DNA type is because I had to do it um, as part of the Richard III project. And um, I've done my dad's Y chromosome type for him, and he's one of my controls that I use in the lab all of the time. But I'm interested in this idea that people tie a lot of of their identity and information about what they think about their ancestry to their genetics, when obviously we're all a complete mixture. Our, our genetics is a complete patchwork of that, of all of our ancestry. Looking at the Y and the mitochondrial DNA just tells you about two relatives. I know that my ancestry is going to be quite complex genetically, and, and I, I don't know, I just like that idea. I like the fact that we all have very mixed, complex ancestry in our, in our genomes. I'm not too worried about what's in there. <laughs> that was Dr. Turi King from Leicester University. And now it's time to look at your burning genetics questions. Rayam Fode wants to know if stem cells are a reason for cancer and if stem cells can cure cancer. To answer, here's Haley Friend, who's studying for a PhD in cancer stem cells at Cambridge University. Scientists now believe that in at least some cancers, a subset of the cells exist which are far more powerful than any of the other cells um, in the cancer. And it is these cells which drive the growth and spread of the cancer, and we call these cancer stem cells. 
But that name's actually a little bit confusing because we don't really know if these cancer stem cells are, are normal healthy stem cells gone bad or whether they actually derive from a different type of cell altogether. They could be uh, a, a different type of cell which now looks a bit like a stem cell but, but a bad one. How are they actually involved in fueling cancer? So these uh, stem cells are the ones that will divide lots of times to give rise to the, the tumour that you have in your primary cancer. But they're also the cells that will be able to break off and go elsewhere in the body and cause what we call metastasis. And this is when, um, when cancer can really accelerate and grab hold. Can stem cells cure cancer? Well, if we're talking about the cancer stem cells I just described... Well, if we could develop therapies to target these cells in particular, that would give us a really powerful weapon. It would be like using a, a sniper to take out the commander-in-chief. But there are also talks of using our normal, healthy, non-cancerous stem cells to treat cancer. So these stem cell therapies are currently being used to treat cancers of the blood or bone marrow or, or lymphatic system. And so what these involve is harvesting a person's normal healthy stem cells or it could be a close relative and then using radiation to completely wipe out the cancerous tissue for example the lymphatic system and then that gives you a completely blank canvas to re-implant those stem cells to give rise to a new healthy organ which doesn't have cancer although it is important to note we can't use those uh, treatments for all cancers and it sometimes is rather than a cure we're looking at giving a patient more time so although I think it's a, probably a bit too much to say stem cells can cure cancer, they certainly give us another powerful weapon to use. That was Hayley Friend from Cambridge University. And if you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics you want us to answer, email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com. And finally, our gene of the month is Cleopatra, named after the legendary Egyptian queen, who was said to have committed suicide with the aid of a poisonous snake, specifically by allowing an asp to bite her on the bosom. The gene's thought to be active in developing fruit fly embryos, but faults in Cleopatra only cause problems when the developing embryos encounter a protein called asp. Get it? But despite the clever name, very little's actually known about the Cleopatra gene or what it does, so it remains as enigmatic as its namesake. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month and we'll be taking a look at the genetics of heart disease. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.